Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Seek First Podcast. I'm Rick Brown. We talk about everything here, life, seeking God, biblical truth, today's culture, and whatever is on my guest's radar to unpack. We want to understand what is happening around us. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First Podcast. Thanks, everybody. Let's jump in. We have been so looking forward to this night with Dr. McDonald, and yet just to mention a few things, I want to encourage you guys, because sometimes we get so much oppressive bad news, we want to have some good news, right? So uh, I just want to share some really good news, and and it's special good news because the people that are really pulling for these things are actually coming from our fellowship. Uh, New York Post says, Texas judge blocks Biden vaccine mandate for the federal workers. Last last Friday, which is really great news, that affects 3,500,000 people. Think of that, a lot of folks. So it's working, but it started with a federal employee from our fellowship saying, hey, we'd like to stand up. And there's about 20 of us, and then we talked a little more, and then after a day it turned into 45, and then he connected with a national group that was 4,500, and we had an event here, uh, Feds for Medical Freedom, and this is one of the few cases that Dr. Simone with America Frontline Doctors was willing to take on legally. So she came, I spoke, and uh, she spoke, and they took it on. And so that freedom for 3.5 million federal workers in America came right here from you guys. New York Times tells us Los Angeles schools put off a student vaccine mandate until fall. Now, hang on, your, your applause will be much bigger than that. So the second largest school district in America is Los Angeles, number one, New York. So um, Perk went to work, uh, which is Amy Bond, who is also from our fellowship, and partnering with Nicole Pearson and some other people, and they fought, and it was their fight that saved. They were basically representing 34,000 kids that did not want the vaccine. And so that all got stayed... And just from, once again, somebody in our own fellowship standing up, and uh, Amy saw in 2019 the importance informed Perk. It's almost like she had this prophetic insight to be ready for that moment. And so what a blessing. Now, because of that, they also filed up in Piedmont, so they went after San Francisco, and uh, they just caved when they saw this happen, that Piedmont just dropped its vaccine mandate. Now, this afternoon, and we didn't get the news, but for six days, the largest truck caravan in history going across. They were descending right now, I mean, right as we speak, but uh, the, the uh, world record for truck convoys is like five miles. They said this is 70 kilometers or 43 miles long of truckers going across the... Walter Lander said, 
When small men cast long shadows, it's a sign that the sun is setting. And uh, we are uh, in a place right now with small people, with small minds, with big ideas of tyranny. And um, we need to know how to stand up. But I just want you to know what a joy and privilege it is to be a, a part of a group of people that these incredible things that are national wide stories are coming right from here from this fellowship from you guys. It's, it's awesome. I just wanted to share some good news with you guys that we're winning. We're really here to hear from Dr. Mark McDonald, a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and he has written this new book, and we have watched it in real time, but he has documented it with his expertise to basically unpack what has happened. The United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to a Mass Delusional Psychosis. Please welcome our friend, Dr. Mark McDonald. introduction and what a powerful crowd. You may be surprised. I also feel optimistic just as Pastor Rick does for 2022. I'm actually surprised myself uh, because when I started 2021 I felt despondent. I really did. I felt grim. I didn't see much hope for our future because we had already spent one year living in a, a flat state where there was no movement. 15 days to flatten the curve became one year. And I felt that given the lack of overcoming the inertia, the lack of strength of conviction of the bulk of Americans in pushing back, that there really wasn't any hope for things to change. I don't feel that way today. This is not just wishful thinking. As Dennis Prager would say, this is rational optimism. That's very important. <laughs> optimism in itself, on its face, is nothing more than expecting or hoping that good things will turn out at the end. Uh, that's naive. It needs to be based on evidence. And I do have evidence to be optimistic. And I will finish with that. But I want to start with the other side. What went wrong? First, I want to define terms. So mass delusional psychosis, what is this? This is the subtitle of my book, United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to a Mass Delusional Psychosis. Many of you might have heard the term more recently after Dr. Robert Malone went on Joe Rogan and began speaking about something called mass psychotic formation or mass formation psychosis. I can you know, never keep the term straight myself uh, because it's a neologism. It's an invention that he made. Uh, he coined this term combining 
two phrases, one which is mine, mass delusional psychosis, which I began speaking about in summer, early fall of 2020. And the evidence for this is still up on YouTube. You can find it on Charlie Kirk's website. Uh, he posted it in October, but I think the speech I gave was in August in Washington, DC, specifically about mass delusional psychosis. But another man, a Belgian psychologist named Matthias Desmet, has been speaking about what he calls mass formation for about 10 or 15 years. And he speaks about it as a professor under the guise of totalitarianism and the rise of totalitarianism and how it happens within mass formation. Now, you might not know what this means. What, what does formation mean? Well, basically what he means is psychosis. He's using the word formation as a synonym for psychosis. So mass formation basically means mass psychosis or group craziness, which is the same thing as mass delusional psychosis, which is a subtitle of my book. So the point is Matthias Desmond and I have been talking about the same thing, he for years and years, me for about the last two years in the United States, but we never actually spoke with one another we worked in parallel. I didn't even know this man or his name until a couple months ago when I watched one of his videos on YouTube that had been seen over 750,000 times. And I thought, wow, this guy has got some good ideas. And he described this process of mass formation in a very specific way, as did I, but he described it in more of a universal way around the world. I was focusing on it really in the United States, what I was witnessing domestically. Covering the world is far too difficult. There's a lot going on in the US. I can't keep up with what's going on in Northern Europe and Africa and the Middle East and Australia. It's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. So when I say mass delusional psychosis, what I'm referring to is an entire society, which is the United States, and most of its people all losing their minds at the same time. <laughs> Have you seen any of that going around? pursuing clinically as a psychiatrist what's called a delusion, which is a fixed false belief that's contrary to reality. An example, someone sitting in her car, driving with the windows up alone, wearing two masks, a face shield, and gloves, <laughs> as a way to protect herself from catching a cold. <laughs> Believing that the cold is a death sentence, and that this will keep her from catching it. That's a double delusion, actually. <laughs> Neither is true. The belief that staying at home and keeping your children locked indoors and watching Zoom school for two and a half years is going to keep them safe. That's delusional. The belief that healthy people when I say healthy people, I mean people who are not feverish, coughing, sneezing, wheezing, collapsing, shivering, shaking, vomiting, that those people, like all of you sitting here in this room today, make other people sick. That's delusional. The belief that for the first time in history, the first time in medical history at least in the United States, we have a viral respiratory illness that has absolutely no possible treatment except an injection. 
steroids, aspirin, N-acetylcysteine, antidepressants, to name a few, are completely, completely inappropriate and dangerous for the first time in medical history, but only if you're using it to treat a virus from China. If you have depression, if you have pain, if you have inflammation, they're completely safe, and we should continue to use them. Psychiatrists have had their prescriptions for Luvox, which is generically called fluvoxamine, which is an antidepressant, blocked and challenged by pharmacists. But only when the patient is using it for something other than depression or anxiety. It becomes very dangerous. These are all delusions. These are all psychotic reactions. They're irrational. They don't make any sense. And the reason why they're so dangerous, the reason why I wrote this book back in October, November, is that when people stop thinking, when they stop thinking for themselves, when they stop thinking critically, when they stop making judgments, and they become driven by fear, a very powerful emotion, and I'll quote Dennis Prager again because he has so much wisdom, he used to think that love and hate were the two strongest emotions. He's clarified that recently. Fear is more powerful than love and hate. Look what it's done to our country. Look what it's done to the world in the last two years. The suffering that we have incurred as a human race in the last two years has not largely been driven by hate. It's been driven by fear. And when fear paralyzes you, just like chronic pain keeps you from being able to touch objects and move because it's giving you a signal that there's something dangerous when there isn't. When you're afraid for a long period of time, when there's no immediate threat, you become traumatized. You become like a victim of previous violence who's reliving that violence every day, every week, every year, over and over and over again, and you become jumpy, you become hypervigilant. Think about people coming back from wars with PTSD. They hear a car backfire and they jump. There's no danger, but they react as if there is. What happens if all of us, as Americans, we stay afraid of something after two weeks, after the first 15 days where we were all in chaos, we didn't know what was going on, is it safe, is it not? We didn't really know. What if we stay afraid for two years, or three, or 30? What happens to us? What happens is, we start to follow, because we're afraid, recommendations, guidelines, mandates, and orders from other people who think on our behalf, but don't think of us, they think for us. And then we start giving up basic freedoms and liberties as we have in the last couple of years because we have started to worship an altar of safety rather than pushing, pursuing, fulfilling a life of freedom and fullness. That is a big mistake, huge mistake. Because once we give up those freedoms, once we give up those liberties, once we agree to live in fear, 
we eventually become addicted to it because it provides us with a temporary comfort, just like shooting up heroin, just like alcohol does. It is comforting, it does feel good for a short period of time, and then what happens, you need more. You may have seen that uh, meme that went around a few weeks ago of a man uh, sitting at a table with a jar and a bunch of uh, sticks stuck up his nose. He said, I'm on my 17th test today. Seventeenth. <laughs> but I can stop any time. <laughs> and this is certainly not hurting me. It sounds like an alcoholic. My wife didn't leave me because of the booze. I didn't lose my job because I'm a drunk. I can stop any time. It's not hurting my life. This is what fear does. People with masks, people with face shields, people with gloves, people testing, people quarantining, people isolating, people antisocial distancing. They're doing this because it gives them a temporary sense of relief. But in the long run, it controls them. A woman came to my practice a few weeks ago and she looked scared. She had gloves on, she had the double mask, she had the face shield. She sat down in front of me and I thought, oh God. <laughs> this is gonna be a nightmare. <laughs> I was just bracing myself and she surprised me. She said, Dr. McDonald, I'm here because I work for a very high powered attorney. I'm his assistant who is basically the chief counsel for a very large well-known entertainment company in Hollywood and they're requiring everybody to get the shot, what they call the vaccine. It's not a vaccine. It does not protect you against infection. It does not prevent you against transmission. When was the last time you had to get a vaccine four times in six months? I, I call it the drug or the shot because I just don't want to be promoting falsehoods. I think truth is much more important than anything else, especially now. This is actually how I start all of my treatment with my patients. I tell them the first thing we have to agree on is reality and truth. Not your truth, my truth, his truth, the truth. Anything else is your experience, her experience, his experience. And there's nothing wrong with experience, but it is different than truth. Truth is objective. It exists outside of us. It does not exist based upon our feelings that day. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not truth, something else. So I tell my patients, we have to start from truth and reality. If you cannot do that, then we can't work together. So this woman comes into my practice, and she, with all the gloves and the protective equipment, she says to me, I need to get a medical exemption. I thought, that's bizarre. <laughs> Why would she want a medical exemption? She seems scared to death. And she said, I don't trust this drug. I don't trust this shot. I don't want to put myself at risk. I said, well, why are you here? I mean, we're on the same page. And then I asked her, I I'm a little confused. You're here to get a medical exemption because you're not afraid of getting this, this virus. Why are you all dressed up like you're going into a hazmat <laughs> decontamination unit? And she said, to her credit, she said, I know that what I'm doing is harming myself but I can't stop. I can't do it. I want to, but I'm not ready to yet. And I said, you know, I respect that. 
you're being honest, you're living in reality, you're admitting that you don't have control over what I have now coined recently a fear addiction. And I think we've moved from just being afraid to developing an addiction to fear. Loss of control, use despite harm. That's what an addiction is. Those two qualities have to be present for there to be an addiction. I'll speak about that more in a moment because that's the subject of what will be my next book, which I hope to get out by Easter, which is tentatively titled, and this is, I'm kind of going ahead of myself, but I just want to mention it because I think it's important on the optimism note. The book is tentatively titled, Freedom from Fear. A 12-step program to an individual and a national recovery. Modeled after AA and Jordan B. Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Because I've been asked so many questions in the last few months. What do we do? How do we get out of this? What do I do for somebody who's still afraid? I'm a little afraid. What do I do? I don't know. Well, now I'm actually going to put it out into a book. I'm going to set it out as a, a kind of a guide. Uh, as opposed to the first book that I wrote, which is really... Um, Hey, how did we get here? How did things get so bad? What are the cultural antecedents to the mass delusional psychosis? Why are people so fearful? Because I don't think that if we, if we don't understand how we got here, we don't know how to move forward. It's sort of like a diagnosis. You don't see somebody and just throw pills at them, give them therapy. You have to know how they got to where they are. Where did the illness come from? Define the illness. We need to define the problem so that we can find a solution to it, very much like medicine. And once we have that, then we can develop a plan, which is like the book that I've written, the second book, which I haven't written yet. It's in my head. <laughs> it will be written. I promise it will be written. And the book that I wrote in November, which is United States of Fear, described in the first third how we got to the point of being so scared, how we got to the point where we lost our minds, where we could no longer think for ourselves. And the main point that I was making, and I'll, there's a lot more detail when you read the book, you'll see it's very well referenced too, which is strange because I got a comment on Amazon recently. Somebody who clearly had not bought the book or read it wrote, this book, one star. Well, that's pretty intense. What, what was so bad about this book? I, I better look at the criticism. I want to take criticism. And the comment was very poorly referenced. Well, the book is 140 pages. The last 40 pages are all references. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't know if you heard, uh, but on my Substack account, I posted a letter. Uh, it was a transcribed email, really, from a librarian in Chicago. She's the director of the Franklin Public Library System. And one of my readers of my book brought a few copies of it to her and gave them to her and said, I want these donated to the library system so that people can read the book in the library. People who perhaps aren't aware of the book or can't afford to buy it. I said, that's great. I, I love that. Well, the librarian wrote back to him and she said, uh, I can't post this book. I can't put it into the library. And he said, why not? And she said, well, in addition to the, the large amount of medical misinformation in the book, <laughs> misinformation, by the way, has now become a synonym for I disagree with the government. Thus, the title of my website and my Substack account, Dissident MD. 
I feel like someone of these, these Soviet dissidents, you know, in underground cafes writing against, you know, the government. Um, in addition to the misinformation, she said that the book was so poorly referenced <laughs> and that it was self-published and it contained errors. Well, none of that's true. It's not self-published. It's published by a real publishing house out of New York called Post Hill. It is very well referenced. And if there's any errors in the book, I would love for her to tell me where they are so that I can criticize them and correct them. Um, so far, you know, crickets. But I did post it in my Substack, um, and I invited her in an open letter to answer my, my questions. Where are all the errors? Where is the misinformation? Uh, a few days later, she wrote a response to the man who she denied the book access to in the library, and she said that she's rethinking her position. <laughs> what a difference a day makes. And 6,000 people reading your account and then writing emails to her saying, are you off your rocker? <laughs> this is a public library. So fear, why it's so dangerous and why mass delusional psychosis is so dangerous is that if we don't understand where it came from, how can we fix it? Well, where did it come from? It didn't come from China in a virus on March 17th that invaded our country. We haven't actually had in my view, a medical pandemic from a virus. We've had a pandemic of fear. This virus has really done very little in and of itself medically to our country and to the world. The 800,000 people who supposedly died from this virus, even more recently, not just in April of 2020 when the CDC said that 94% of those people had on average three comorbid serious medical conditions. Walensky, the CDC director, has updated that, I think, to five or six comorbid medical conditions. 94% of 800,000 people. So you take away 94%, you're left with about 40 to 45,000 Americans, which is fewer than the number of people who died in car accidents in 2020, one year. So this is less than car accidents. Now, of the people who did die with the comorbid conditions, could they have been saved? Well, my colleagues, Dr. Harvey Risch, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Robert Malone, Dr. Brian Tyson, who operates out of El Centro and a bunch of clinics, who's treated 8,000 8, patients. His book was just taken off Amazon, by the way, two days after it was put up. They canceled 20,000 pre-orders on Kindle. Took them away, why? Misinformation. Well, he's treated 8,000 patients in El Centro. Of the patients he treated in the first seven days, with all the drugs that we've used for 20 or 30 years, including some of the newer ones that are repurposed, like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, he's lost a grand total of zero patients. Oh, it's a statistical outlier. His population is not representative of the county. Well, actually they are. Most of the people that come to his clinics don't speak English. They're Mexican migrants, the same people that go to the county clinics. And the county clinics, aggregate data for that county has an average death rate of 3%. So his death rate should be 3% as well. It's not, it's zero. Literally not a single person died in the first seven days of symptom onset when they were treated. So if we extrapolate that into the United States as a whole, what if all of the people that died of the Wu flu were actually treated 
in the first seven days, just like if they had had a serious infection of flu or cold, what would have happened? The death rate would have completely collapsed. We would have seen virtually nobody die, not from the infection, maybe from other comorbid medical conditions, sure. But healthy people, we wouldn't have seen healthy people die. But because of the EUA, the emergency use authorization, which prevents any alternative treatment from coming to bear on an illness, if it does, then the EUA ends and then all the vaccines stop, which is why we still have these EUAs for the so-called vaccine and why we don't have any treatments because the treatments compete directly with the shots. And if there's an alternative treatment that's already available, then the shots are nixed, they're null and void. That's, the, that's really the reason why we still have these shots and why there's no treatment and why pharmacies are refusing to fill prescriptions because it really does void by federal law the EUA. So why did we get to this point? How did we get here? I believe culturally we got here because for the last several decades we've been primed to be afraid. And this fear, this priming has been intentional, it's been organized, and it's been specifically targeting people who are the most vulnerable to fear. Examples. From the very beginning after World War II, grandparents, great-grandparents might remember this, all of the drop-and-cover drills for nuclear annihilation, hide under your desk, protects you from a nuclear bomb. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but it definitely scared the kids. We move on to you know, the feminist movement, equal rights for women. Sounds great, equal rights for women, equal voting rights. Who's against that? Well, it was in the 70s that Gloria Steinem popularized the phrase, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. That doesn't sound very equal to me. That actually sounds like we don't need men. And it's only a half a step away to we don't like men. Men are dangerous. Men should be contained and controlled and isolated from women, we should become men and we don't want to be around them anymore. And that's really where we've arrived. I mean, toxic masculinity just means masculinity is toxic. If you're told that your daughter at a university has a 30% chance of being raped by the time she finishes school, does that make her feel safe or comfortable to go to university? No, it's not true. It's a false statistic, it's a lie, uh, but it scares people. If we're told that in 10 or 12 years, our entire environment will be underwater, burning or freezing or both, you can never <laughs> decide, one of the two. <laughs> uh, that's very scary, yeah, pick one. That's very scary. Uh, it makes people very frightened. Uh, if we're told that the country is systemically racist, that doesn't make you feel safe. Uh, I mean, now Donald Trump is really responsible for everything that makes us scared. <laughs> if your cat gets diarrhea, it's Donald Trump's fault. <laughs> I was told to talk about cats tonight. This is the only mo comment I'm going to make about cats. So the United States has become scared, and it had become scared before March of 2020. Uh, there was a vibrational angst, and this is where Matthias Desmet's point about formation, mass formation, or 
I always get it confused because of Robert Malone. Mass formation is what he said comes into play, which is that there's a few aspects, a few um, prerequisites for a scared society that are very, very important and that, that come before totalitarianism comes. And one of them is a free-floating or untethered anxiety. And we have been in a state of anxiety for a long time. Part of it is because of, of decadence. Uh, as Americans, relative to previous history, we've really had all of our needs taken care of for a long time. I mean, you can go on your phone and you can order coffee and have it delivered in seven minutes by a guy you've never met before for a couple bucks. This has never happened before. We don't really have to engage with our environment. We don't have to touch things. We don't have to experience cold, excessive heat, even delayed gratification. Like I said, the coffee shows up in seven minutes for a couple bucks. People have been very, very comfortable. And when you're comfortable for a very long time, you start to lose contact with reality. I wrote a Substack column just this week called Fantasy Versus Reality. And one of the points I made in it is that when you live in a false reality, when you don't engage in the environment, you start to assume that the fantasy that you're being told is accurate. And one of those fantasies is all of the fear and the examples of the fear that I just gave you. People don't test their reality anymore because they're being told through politics and politicians, media and large corporations what their reality is. And that reality is not actually reality. It's not tr the truth, it's, it's someone else's truth. And the problem with that is that it leads you to be very easily controlled. And I think that there was perhaps not a conspiracy, but there was an opportunity that arose that fast-forwarded where we were moving that would have happened over 10 or 20 years, and it all happened in a matter of months. It, it, there was a compressed timeline that occurred in spring of 2020, and we're still in it, where people who were clever, not necessarily intelligent, but certainly clever, amoral and perhaps even sociopathic saw an opportunity and they colluded together, seemingly unrelated. I mean, what does Amazon have to do with Washington? Well, it has a lot to do with it. If Washington decides that small and medium-sized businesses can't stay open, but Amazon can, Amazon swoops in and takes all of the business. And once competition kills off, because there is no competition, all of the small and medium-sized businesses and they go bankrupt, they're never gonna restart. They're done. We've lost 30% of all the restaurants and small businesses in Los Angeles. They're not gonna come back. Amazon reached $1 billion in sales daily, daily, for the first time in history of any company. And that happened after all the businesses were ordered shut down by the federal government. That's fascism. We're in a communist cultural war that's based on racial identity rather than economics, which is how communism started, it was an economic battle, now it's a racial tribal battle, but the, the political economic war is really more of a fascist one now. The government, unlike communism, is not taking over all of the businesses and saying we're going to run them, we're going to adopt them as part of the government model, which is what they did in the Soviet Union, which they, they did to some degree earlier in China, now they're not doing that anymore. But what they've done in our country, in our government, is the, the government has started to work with the large businesses to stifle competition for everyone else so that they work hand in glove. That's why the media, the corporations, the pharmacies, they're all doing really well. 
because all the rules have been tweaked so that they always win. And everyone else loses because they can't compete. That's the definition of fascism. It's not government takeover, it's collusion with industry and government. Which doesn't appear to be as bad because it seems like people are still out there, the market's still working, capitalism is still working, but when you tax and tax and tax and regulate and give special incentives to one group and not another, then you, you tilt the scales and the winners automatically come out in the way that you want. And what do the winners do? Then they support the incoming administration and the politicians who then support them again with more regulations and the cycle keeps going. Uh, this is why the teachers union is so dangerous in this state. It's the largest contributor by far to all the political campaigns in California. And as many of you know, parents of children, it's the unions, the teachers unions, who have really determined the government school system in the state in the last two or three years. They're determining what stays open, what stays closed, when your kids can go to school. They determine whether your kids have to wear N95 masks as of Monday of last week. It's the unions. It's not you, it's not even the, the local politicians really, it's the unions. So, the fear allowed us to be taken advantage of. The fear that was present for a long time was stoked and ignited using the virus as a call to action, as an excuse for an emergency. And then once the emergency was rung and the bell was rung, that was used as a base of rationale to suspend all of our rights and liberties, which of course will never be given back. Gavin Newsom is abjectly refusing to give up his emergency orders. I don't think we live in a state of emergency at all right now, but he still does. When will it end? Well, we'll decide when it ends. We meaning he. That's what he said. And he extended the emergency powers. So, once the emergency is announced and all of the liberties are suspended, now they take over, now they remove all of our freedoms and liberties in perpetuity, and then we get into a state of perpetual fear and fear addiction. And unless we decide that we are going to acknowledge where we become addicted and where our fear has taken us and the losses that have occurred and the abuse and the loss of control, like any addict, we're just gonna keep going back to the dealer for more and more and more. And that's, I think, where we've come after two years. I don't think that we are in a shaking state of fear anymore. I think we've gone from fear to compliance to fear addiction. I wrote in my book, in addition to how we got here, I wrote about the way forward. And I think that the way forward is going to have to include an acknowledgement of our addiction and also an acknowledgement of some of the substrata not about fighting masks and shots and all that, which is important, but I think that's just sort of one step along the way. It's just a tool that our government is using to get to an end game of complete control over ourselves, our minds, our bodies, everything, the bodies of our children. I mean, California State, I think his name is Peng, uh, one of the legislatures just introduced a bill to allow uh, for absolutely no exemptions at all for personal belief for all shots, all vaccines, for all school children, and require 
this particular shot for entry to public schools in the fall of this coming year. He just introduced that. And they just passed, I think, uh, a bill to allow kids down to age 12 or 14 to get a shot without parental permission, consent, or even knowledge. Which is where they're going. So I want to say a couple of things that I think are really important. One is, and I spoke about this with, with Pastor Rick earlier, and I want to make sure that I don't forget this because it's really important. Getting above the level of the shots and the masks and, and the, the antisocial distancing and the quarantining and the testing and all this nonsense, which is going to end, it has to end at some point. I think it's important for us to carry this, this more larger idea forward, which is, what does all of this represent? How, how are we all either unified or divided or separated? And I simply put, I would put it this way. We are unified and divided by our pursuit of dependency or our pursuit of independence. And a few examples or factors that I would call dependency seeking would be Insisting that you go to a government school, despite the harm that it causes your child, because it's easier, because it's free. I mean, you are paying for it out of taxes, but you don't have to pay any more. You've already, you've prepaid, let's say. Insisting on electric vehicles versus being able to drive your own cars with gas, even though it only gets you 40 miles before it poops out and there's no charging stations. Um, demanding, insisting that not you, protect yourself with a concealed carry permit, but, but some national police force protect you. And they'll be, they'll be shipped in from another state, uh, and you won't even have names on their badges because they don't want to give their names. They don't know who you are, and they have no interest in protecting you. They're just following orders. That's what the FBI has become, by the way, basically a Stasi force, kicking down doors and just arresting people and throwing them in dark chambers. Allowing boys and girls to be regendered, renamed, chemically castrated, have their breasts chopped off at age 14 without parental consent because she thinks she's a he now. These are all signs of dependency on a state. Secularism is also very state-driven. And this is why I think qualities of independence are so important. And one of them is the protection of religion and faith. There is a reason why the government has been so strongly attacking Orthodox Jews and Evangelical Christians in the last few years. And that is very simply this, that those people who are religious, they ultimately uphold and adhere to an authority which is God. This should not matter to a just state. In fact, it should be encouraged because it encourages virtue, and our country is founded on the necessity of the American to be virtuous. Without virtue, our country collapses. This was what the founders said. But it is incredibly threatening to a statist state, to a totalitarian government, or one that wishes to become totalitarian, or all-controlling, a government that wants to render its people dependent religion is incredibly threatening because if there's a higher power that you adhere to, you are very likely to turn against and fight back against a state 
that is violating virtue, that is violating law, that is violating constitution, or the Bible. And you don't care what price it takes on you. You don't care about the money or the imprisonment or perhaps the loss of life if it's an armed conflict because you are fighting for something greater than loyalty to the state. That's why it's so dangerous. That's why in rural America, those who are married, those who go to church, those who support civic organizations, those who drive their own vehicles, have their own generators, carry their own firearms. And I'm not talking necessarily about politics. It's not about who you vote for. It's not about who you want to sleep with, whether you're gay or straight, whether you're immigrant or American born. That's not the point. The point is that your values are those of independence. And that's very dangerous to a state that wants to control you. That is anathema. That is, that is the Achilles heel. And that is why churches were closed, but liquor stores were kept open. I mean, dependency, drug dependency comes from drugs. Marijuana and alcohol, those were all supported and kept open. Partly because of taxes and financial reasons. They make a lot of money for the state. I get that. But also because people who are drinking and smoking, especially weed, are not thinking for themselves. And they're much more easy and easily controlled. People who are thinking for themselves, who are driving for themselves, protecting themselves, making decisions for their wives, spouses, children, educating themselves, and going to church or synagogue, those people are a big threat. We've got to stop them any way we can. And that's what our government has been doing the last couple of years. And they've been doing it under the guise of safety and health. But it is not truthful. It is a lie. It is not a mistake. It is not an error. It is a lie. It has been a lie from the very beginning. So given that, why do we, why should we, after two years of being controlled, lied to, rendered dependent, had a lot of our hope snuffed out, our freedom ripped away from us, our, our children injected and absconded with by the unions and the teachers, why should we feel optimistic? I went to Century City Mall today to get new glasses. And I walked into the shop, and there were two people there, both employees, no customers. Of course, they were wearing masks. Very nice people, though. And they very politely suggested that I might consider thinking about wearing a mask. <laughs> and I looked around. There was nobody else in the store. It was empty. I said, I don't wear masks. And then I added, I don't participate in kabuki theater. I'm not an actor. I'm a doctor. And they were very nice. And, and they said, well, you know, I'm so sorry, but, you know, we really can't continue to work with you to get your glasses unless you do the mask. And you could you step outside? And they went on and on and on. I put one on my face, kind of pulled it under my chin, and it satisfied them. <laughs> and, and they were very nice and, and they said look we totally hear you we get you we feel you <laughs> just like Mayor London Breed in San Francisco who passed the, uh, the, the masks, masks for all rule about six months ago if you're over age five anywhere you go you got to wear a mask and yet she was at this club Tony, Tony, Tony came, and she was photographed without her mask on, whooping it up, drinking, running around. You know why? You know what her excuse was, her, her rationale? Well, I was just feeling it. 
I was feeling it. So if you feel it, you don't have to wear a mask. And, and they didn't care. They really didn't care. They, they made it very clear to me that they were just employees and they were just trying to keep their jobs. And, and I could feel, I really could feel that they, they did not believe this. They knew it was a, a lie and a joke and they just, they just wanted me to not get them in trouble. And we were trying to reach a kind of an, a, a, an understated, under, under the surface agreement, kind of a wink and a nod. And I didn't feel pressured, I didn't feel harassed, I didn't feel that sense of sadism and attackism like you saw in that video of those two crazy middle-aged white women with masks on in an elevator in New York City screaming at this black man who wasn't under threat. I mean, the guy was big, these women were tiny, doing anything to you, I'm just not wearing a mask. And they're screaming at him and they're yelling, Black Lives Matter, as they strike him with their fists. <laughs> it's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. It's just bizarre. As Larry Elder would say, they, they jumped the shark <laughs> with that one. It wasn't like that at all. It was very civil, it was very understood. We, we just, there was this good communal energy. And this is sort of the dying gasp of the, of the control. And I mention this story because I have had experiences like this now for the last month or so, everywhere I go and also with my patients. I feel and I, I hear and I, I see that people, even in LA, are starting to become weary. They're starting to realize that this is a lie. And they're starting to push back. Yeah. And I'm not talking about people like you here in the audience. I'm talking about the softy, lefty, moderate, Democrat, Biden voting, compliant mask, face shield wearing, testing, anti-social distancing, quarantining, weak, naive, cowardly, but good-hearted liberals. <laughs> I'm talking about them. I'm talking about the, the girl who's uh, 21 years old who falls into that category and came to my office last week and said, I have to go back to scripts at the end of January for my, my last year of college and I can't get in, now Zoom right now, because it's too dangerous for college kids to go back to school because of the Omicron. <laughs> it's everywhere. Until I get a booster. And she said, I got two shots in the summer because I believed in this. And then I started bleeding for seven weeks. She had menstrual bleeding that she couldn't stop. Seven weeks? until she got an implantable hormonal IUD just to stop it. It did stop. And then she caught the woo flu, of course, because everybody that gets the shots catches it. The rate is actually twice as high if you get shots than if you don't in catching this disease. It's true. You're all gonna catch it anyway. Everybody's gonna catch it and you're gonna be fine. And she was fine. She got better in about three days. And now she's being told she has to get a third shot, a booster, after she got two shots, got sick from it, seriously ill, caught the disease, recovered in three days, and now she's gotta go back to school and get another shot in order to return to campus? She said, I'm done. And she said, I voted for Joe Biden. She's a supporter of his administration, but she's done. And I've heard these stories from so many people, young people, 
People who are really, they swallowed, the, they drank the Kool-Aid, and they're done. They're weary, they're tired, they see that there's a lie. The chasm between the fantasy that we are being told, and the fantasy is that you all have to get shots every few weeks, like on a punch card, you get 10 shots, you get a free hot dog. <laughs> and the mass, the social distancing, the quarantining, all of that, that's the fantasy. If you don't do that, we're all going to die, right? And... and and in the meantime, your life is going great. The economy is just gangbusters. The more money we print, the lower inflation goes. The more you spend, the more you save. There's no crime. Crime is just way down. Nobody's getting shot. Homelessness is going great. There's no homeless people around anymore. Our borders are very secure. And then the reality, which is what I just told you, the reality is nobody's getting really sick or dying from this disease. People are getting really sick from shots. Whether you wear a mask or not has absolutely no difference, none, in whether you catch it. And the life that we're living right now, our practical life, is going to hell in a handbasket. Really, no crime in LA. Tell that to the parents of the 24-year-old UCLA grad student who was stabbed to death and left to bleed out on the floor of the store where she worked selling furniture in the upscale Fairfax district last week. Stabbed to death by a mentally ill, probably drug-addicted, homeless man. Or the 71-year-old ER nurse at County SC who was pushed at Union Station on her way to work by a homeless man, mentally ill, probably drug addicted, hit her head, suffered a fatal hemorrhage, and died two days later in the hospital. This is happening every single day. In addition to p cops being shot and murdered in LA, Boston, New York, DC, Atlanta, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the actual reality. And people are seeing that the chasm between the fantasy and the reality is growing and growing and growing. It's growing very rapidly. And eventually, the truth, not, not the truth from Washington, but the truth that you're living, is starting to become so overwhelming, so unavoidable, that the support for this nonsense is waning from the people in the middle. Not the leftists, not the conservatives, the people in the middle that are just going along to get along. As that's happening, the support for the Brandon administration is going into the toilet. His popularity rating is lower than the rate of inflation. Inflation is about 33% right now. Real inflation, not the numbers they tell you from uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, the real inflation, gas, wood, fuel, rent, beef, 30 to 60% price increased over last year. So the average is about 33%. His popularity is down below 33, probably 31, 30, 29. His vice president is in the 20s, lowest in history. Interestingly, recent poll noted that the most popular politician in the United States with the lowest disapproval rating is Donald Trump. He isn't even in office and he's the most popular. Can you believe that? So, 
as the support for the Brand administration collapses, and the reality of the misery that he, has, he and his acolytes have, have put on us, and most Democratic governors and mayors, because all of the large cities in the U.S. are controlled by Democrats, and they're all dangerous, run-down, poor, impoverished, unlike rural America or Republican-controlled cities, of which there aren't that many. As all of that's happening, I believe that people are waking up and they're starting to see the reality for what it is. And final point, the addiction to fear is starting to be noted. And in my next book, I'm going to explain for people who are ready to hear it, for people who want to overcome the addiction, not the brainwash, not the people who are still following the guru and they've shaved their heads and they put on their robes and they're still bowing down to him, unwilling to accept the fact that he's only there to sleep with a lot of women and gather money and then fly away on his jet to Hawaii. The people who have turned down the guru, the people who have walked away from him, the people who are living in fear but want to get beyond it, they are going to be able to move through their fear by acknowledging that they are addicted, just like you do in AA, you acknowledge that you have a problem, that you're afraid that you're gonna move forward, and they go through the steps. And the last step, the last step of the program is to become a mentor. So you all in here, you are obviously not addicted to fear. You don't need to go through the steps. <laughs> but what you can do is you can jump to step 12, which is become a mentor, help others help others overcome their fear. Don't try to pull people away from their brainwashed state. That is not useful, it is, a, it is a, a horrible exercise in frustration. I've tried it for a couple years, I've given up on it, it doesn't work. Don't try to argue with people, don't try to prove data points with them. This is not a data war. The data war was won a long time ago. This is a psychological war. And if you think about it in terms of addiction, I think it's very helpful because people who are addicted, first of all, they need to accept that they're hurting themselves and they want to get better. Otherwise, you're just arguing. You're just pushing them back. You're entrenching their position. So when people say, I'm afraid, but I don't want to be afraid, I think there's a problem. I'm not sure I understand what's going on. I thought we were all going to be free. Things were going to be better. It just doesn't feel better. That's a sign of curiosity, very important, and concern and openness. And when you see that, that means that they're ready, perhaps, to lose the addiction and move forward. So then you can mentor them. You can ask them questions that help them to go back and research on their own. Facts, real facts, information. Isn't it odd? Isn't it odd that so many people that got these shots are now getting sick? Hmm. Who would have thought? And so many of them just seem to be fine after a few days. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is kind of interesting, he says behind his two masks. And then he goes back and he does his research and he starts to uncover things like Alex Berenson, like Dennis Prager, like Town Hall, like The Federalist, like Epoch Times. And then he starts to get converted to the truth. And then he will go and spread that message to others. That is what you can do. That is how you can be helpful. You might ask yourself or ask me, well, what do I do with the family members or the friends who are still brainwashed who are, who are not there yet? They're not there yet. Maybe they will, maybe they won't come around. But I suspect that 
when the seesaw tilts and more and more people in the middle start to shift over to truth and fearlessness and courage, that's going to pull a lot of the other people out of their brainwashed state. Because those people don't want to be alone. They don't want to be isolated. And they might just because they want to be part of the, of the group, which is what led them to join the brainwashed group to begin with, they might want to join the larger group of the free. And then they'll start to come over despite themselves, and eventually they'll, they'll turn around. There will always be a few that won't, but it's not your responsibility to solve them. You didn't break them. You don't need to fix them. So speak to the people who are available to hear, available to listen. If, if, put your energy onto those people. That's, that's my message of encouragement, because I think this is the time. I think this year we have an opportunity to change things. I really do. This is not 2021. So last year was the year of fear, the pandemic of fear. This year is going to be the year that we free ourselves from fear. This is the year that we're going to move forward. This is the year that we're going to inspire others to drop their fear. And this is the year that we are going to revitalize our country, just like the Great Awakening of 150 years ago, which was largely church-driven. We have an opportunity to have a Great Awakening now. And it's going to be largely church-driven as well, but it's not going to be purely out of religion. It's going to be out of a, a reverence for freedom, a reverence for rights, a reverence for independence. And that's going to unify people who aren't necessarily even church-going or religious, because we all have that in common. Now, they will probably become more religious as a result of that, but that's, that's just a, a icing on the cake. And then we can take our country back and we can go from grassroots up. We're not waiting for a man to come as our Messiah, as our Savior. Donald Trump will not save us from this mess. We have to do it. Individuals in the community, families, community, cities, states, we have to rise up. We have to say this country is for us. It's for we the people, it's not for Washington, it's not top down. If we can do that, we can overcome the fear, we can get our rights and our freedoms back, and we can move forward as a nation, as a people. That's my message, and I think we can do it this year. Thank you. Light in the darkness, I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Times of trouble, I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, oh,
times of trouble I'll keep my heart seeking you I will keep my heart seeking